happy, uh, happy first day of spring, dude. <gasps> Exciting, huh? We made it. It's spring. We've it's gone, spring again. <laughs> in this pandemic, we've gone from this winter of our discontent to the spring of our discontent. It's to the second spring of our discontent. Second spring. Because yeah. I'm about to have my second lockdown birthday, and I'm mad about it. Oh man, sorry. Oh, I just, I just had my yeah. second one, uh, but I was, I was ready this time. And I got a cabin in the woods, and me and my friends all got COVID tests, and we went and had a nice birthday party that lasted three days. That's how you got to do it. Is everyone getting the vax? Are you guys getting vaccined or what? Working on it. I have an an appointment April 12th, but I might try to move it up somehow because Debbie wants me to go to Florida with her, and I'd rather get vaccinated before I do that. Yeah, Florida. Florida. (laughs) Maron. That's uh, it's a really good idea. Mine's on uh, the 29th, so eight days from now I get my first one. But oh my God, does it knock you on your ass? My girlfriend got the second the other day, and for like 24 hours she was a wreck, just like having a flu, basically. Sounds lovely. Well, better than better than real COVID. Yeah, for right? sure. A little baby COVID, just a touch yeah. of the COVID, just, just a taste. Just one day. You can have yeah. little A COVID. As That's a day. right. Uh, <laughs> shall we start a podcast or is this going to be like personal vaccine let's, anecdote show? Because I'm down for that. I don't know. <laughs> let's, let's do it. Sarah's got a yeah. book. Yeah. Feel like, I feel like we should talk about it. I wrote a book. It. Got Who the knew? Book. I wrote another book. book. That's the weird part. Yeah. I'm very jealous. And books on books and on books. Maybe I'll ask you later for advice on how I do my book that has been like on the back burner for two mm. years. But... See, I don't write books. I, I'm much smart, smarter than that. I just tweet. I just post. That's <laughs> my words out there so much more effectively <laughs> and quickly with instant feedback from my readers. It will uh, save you time. <laughs> it will save you time. That is the, the thing. The recompense isn't that great, though. <laughs> yeah, but it isn't really for writing books either. Oh, uh, that's so, right. <laughs> that's well, I'm going to turn my tweets into NFTs. <laughs> that way. Non-fungible oh tweets. God. Non-fungible tweets. I... That's a new thing. Okay, so I learned what an NFT was like a week and a half ago, and I was really mad actually that I didn't know what this was before I finished writing this book because I would have put them into the art chapter because I have some feelings about how ridiculous this is. And then today on Twitter, in fact, I saw um, Beeple, who is the artist, and I say that with big air quotes, who sold an NFT for some like ridiculous amount of money. And the art was something about like, Bernie Sanders's giant trillion dollar teat. And I was just like, I hate everything about this even more than I already did. <laughs> and that was impressive because like, it was already like a scam asset class designed to find new places for rich people to park their fake wealth in a, you know, global fucking catastrophe. And then it's like also making fun of people who, you know, think that the world should be different and i'm like god i hate you so much yeah it's a very cursed combination of things. my hatred is so I pure also just like i love bernie but i don't want to think about his teeth <gasps> yeah it was horrifying and i cannot unsee it now and i'm really mad about it um these are the things that i spend sundays thinking about now because <laughs> i don't have a life because i have not been vaccinated yet so um i went for a walk outside and then i learned about more nfts 
We'll get there. I just I just stole the concept of non fungible tweet from this podcast and tweeted it out. So we're doing the oh work God. is getting done, man. I guess it is fungible. We should all. have made an NFT of that bit of the I fuck it everything. Um, <laughs> yeah, capitalism. It's not too capitalism late. is bad. Um, yeah, you wrote a whole book about it. <laughs> I've written two whole That's books about thing. it now. Um, yeah, yeah, but about that (laughs) so we are here with sarah jaffe author of work won't love you back how devotion to our jobs keeps us exploited exhausted and alone out now on bold type books and i feel like the show has started (laughs) yeah it started a little bit a little bit all right little ice little little first question little icebreaker question okay uh so I just quit my day job. Congratulations. Uh, as you, thank you. Uh, to focus on making anti-capitalist media full-time with my comrades without a boss. Uh, did I make the right move? And if not, can you help me get my job back? <laughs> I can almost certainly not help you get your job back because um, nobody's hired me in eight years. So, And here we are thinking you were like the job yenter or yeah, something like that. You write so much about work. Yeah, um, that has not made me terribly hireable. I mean, I get hired for things because I get paid to write articles. But like, yeah, I, I, I haven't had a real job in, in quite a while. Um, which is mostly a good thing, I think. Um, having a boss is bad. Of course, this means I kind of have micro bosses because, you know, everybody that I write for is in some way sort of my boss. But um, yeah, I, 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 at this moment, prefer multiple micro bosses to one big boss. Now it sounds like my life is a video game. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, um, in terms of it being the correct decision, I try not to give life advice based on my own life choices because, good Lord, I would not want to wish any of those on anyone. <laughs> but, yeah, sure, quit your job. I mean, I'm always pro-quitting your job, just as principal. Hell, yeah. Well, you're still here. You're still alive. You can afford uh, wine. I can see you. I am drinking $10 uh, Vino Verde because it's spring, kids. You know, the uh, that- the last job that I lost, I lost it by antagonizing the boss until he fired me or laid me off, actually, and I got unemployment. See, so that's the real, that. yeah, that's the real best scam is to manage to do it in a way that you get unemployment. Yeah, I mean, it, I know this isn't like, this I guess could be an episode where we just bitch about work and bosses, but <laughs> long story short is um, these assholes, this fucking, this concrete company, like ref- would refuse to play and pay anybody's benefits on time. And you'd nag mm-hmm. them and nag them and nag them. You'd get your wages and they'd be right most of the time. But then there'd be all these thousands of dollars that they wouldn't pay for months and months. And people were getting their health insurance turned off and shit. So I found out that they were eight months late on paying my benefits. And I was like out of hours at that point in time. And I call, I did what I'm supposed to do. I called my business agent at the union and I told him like, listen, these guys haven't paid benefits. This sucks. Do something. And then I saw the boss the next day, the owner. And he's like, you dared to call the union on me. I thought this was a family company. You're going outside to somebody else. I'm like outside to somebody else. It's my fucking union. You signed a union contract and didn't say benefits. And he, he wanted me to apologize or something, which was insane. 
And he just like stood there waiting. Mm. Yeah. He stood there waiting for me to apologize until like he just stomped off because I wouldn't like shake his hand. Fuck you, dude. And then I got laid off like a couple days later. A union means never having to say you're sorry. People, people, (laughs) people, people like uh, downplay not just the dignity that union jobs give you, but also the ability to tell your boss to go fuck himself and sometimes be able to work, you know, go, go back on the job the next day. Legally protected. Mm-hmm. I believe that there is an actual NLRB case that found that you have the right to tell your boss to fuck off. Yeah. Um, God, I should oh, I, yeah. I should really be able to cite these things better, but I am terrible at, at pulling citations out of my uh, whatever. But Citations yeah. needed, Sarah. <laughs> there are 40 pages in my book of citations, <laughs> damn it. Because in part, I, I can't remember anything. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I like looking at them and seeing where I can read for further enrichment. Yes. Also, fuck citations needed for for being such a good, well-researched podcast and making the rest of us look bad. But like, moving on, moving on to, uh, I got I got some real questions right. for you. So let's start with this one, all right? Uh, in your book, you talk about how the idea that you're supposed to love your work is a relatively recent yeah. one that came about along with the turn to neoliberalism, tracing back to the 1970s. Uh, before that, Workers under capitalism in a largely uh, manufacturing-based economy were just expected to do the work and then go home at the end of the day and lead their fucking lives. Can you sketch out that transition a bit and what factors uh, have driven it? Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, right, like most of us probably grew up with the idea that we were going to work really hard and get jobs that we might care about, right? And then probably have been like slowly disabused of that notion over the last 10, 20 years, 30 years in some cases. And hey, 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 I'm right here. Please. (laughs) No, I mean, me too. So the, um, but the change in the economy, right, is actually like a, a change on multiple levels on sort of what kind of work is done where and by whom. And so, um, what kind of work is done in places like the US and most of the other countries that I report from in this book um, is a shift away from manufacturing being done in expensive high wage countries like the one we live in and to more uh, exploitable workforces in lower wage countries with fewer um, pr- legal protections and fewer you know, environmental regulations and all of that garbage. And that was also done sort of deliberately to break up the unions that the workers had in places like the US. Um, so factories close down here, they reopen elsewhere, or they don't reopen at all. And they also sort of moved from the north to the south of the US to parts of this country that were also mostly non-union, which is, you know, why it's so telling that we're seeing a big union drive at Amazon in um, Alabama. So that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is when the factory jobs go away, um, the possibility of having a single working class family supported on a single income also goes away. And women start moving into the workforce in higher numbers. And women have always been in the paid workforce, but the amount of women in the workforce grew. And despite the, you know, the sort of story we hear a lot of the time is that women moved into the workforce because feminism, which is partly true. Women also moved into the workforce because they couldn't pay the bills any longer on one salary. So you get the growth of retail, healthcare, um, 
all of these service industries that are, you know, feminine gendered work that is now a much bigger part of the economy. And so, you know, that's one big, huge chunk of the story. The other part is just, um, well, it's not just anything. It's sort of the spread of university education and with it college debt, which um, we can talk about if you want to. The way that um, more and more people in the U.S. say have a college degree now and there's still supposedly a college wage premium, but that's mostly just because the wages for everybody else have not gone up at all. And so now we have, you know, mountains of people with mountains of student debt who still don't have good jobs. And we're told that they, you know, that going to college was the thing that was going to move you up and out of the factory work life that maybe your parents had. Right. And these are, of course, broad generalizations. There were always parts of the workforce that looked different. Um, teaching, for example, has been around for a long time. And so the narratives that we had for a very long time around things like teaching, nursing, um, and also on the other side, sort of creative work, then become a much bigger part of the economy. And so these expectations that come along with that kind of work are now much more prevalent in the workplace when at a time when, you know, as you said, the manufacturing workplace, like nobody cares if you smile at the car as it goes past you on the assembly line, as long as you are doing your thing the amount of times an hour that it needs to be done, um, whatever part uh, of the car you're assembling, right? In construction, if you went around smiling all the time, they'd think you were insane. Exactly. People would- You don't yeah. have to like kiss every eye beam as you <laughs> solder it into place. Yeah. You have to grin and ask it how it's doing today. I just, I just paint a big smiley face on my welding hood. You know, Everyone knows <laughs> I'm smiling on the inside as I'm uh, throwing those beads down. Right. And like, so this, this sort of longing for like those kinds of jobs that you didn't have to friggin' pretend to like is like a lot of the appeal of Trumpism, right? Where like Trump is promising to make America great again. What he's kind of promising is like, I'm going to bring back good jobs for white dudes again. He's going to bring an end to emotional labor. <laughs> but I mean, really, like it's not an accident that like men don't want to do the jobs that women have historically had to do because historically those jobs sucked. And those jobs sucked precisely, you know, in part because men treated women like we didn't matter. It's all an overlapping mess of things that, um, yeah, we, we sort of um, are now baked in every day in a variety of different workplaces. So let's talk about that, because you have a whole section on what we might call love, which is mostly gendered labor, like we've been talking about, teaching, domestic work, nonprofits, etc., which harnesses this natural right. i'm using big huge air quotes people can't see uh this natural feelings of of love and care that people but especially women are right. supposed to feel towards other people and especially children so how do these sexist ideas contribute to the exploitation of women workers and you know in case anyone listening doesn't care about women uh workers more broadly <laughs> Why did you look at me when you said that? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I said this the other day and, and somebody actually made like a cute little comic out of it, which made me very happy that like, if I can convince people of no other reason why they should care about the working conditions of women, of racialized people, of um, queer people, of 
anybody who's been written out of sort of broad labor protections, it is because that those will eventually be brought to you. Um, that's, you know, that's what happens when you allow somebody to be carved out of labor protections, whether they're immigrants or Uber drivers or domestic workers. So domestic work, this is my segue, gets carved out of the New Deal labor protections, right, which are all the labor laws that we still live with today, the National Labor Relations Act, um, the Fair Labor Standards Act, all of these things exclude a certain group of workers, which was mostly domestic workers and farm workers. And that was done basically because you had to compromise with racist Southern Democrats in order to get these laws passed. And racist Southern Democrats didn't want black people having rights. So where are the industries that have mostly black people in them? The farms and the home, um, the paid work in the home. And so those get left out of the law. And now what's happened is what is the gig economy? It is the spread and digitization of the working conditions of domestic workers and farm workers. It's temporary. It's gig based. It's in the home. It's isolated. Um, and you can be fired at any time because you're never really an employee. So anyway, um, for another example, teachers are a great example, right? Because when they, when the people who make such decisions, politicians, etc., in this country decided that we should have public schools, um, they worried about how we were going to pay for public schools because hiring a whole new workforce is expensive. And so the solution that everybody came up with was we're going to hire a bunch of women because women aren't really supposed to work. And anyway, women really love kids. And so they'll be great at teaching. We don't have to train them very much. And we certainly don't have to pay them very much because we won't actually allow them to keep working once they get married. So they'll only be teachers for like a limited period of time between when they're living off their parents and when they are supposedly getting married and having their own babies. And that'll be great. And that'll keep public schools reasonably affordable. And to justify this whole narrative, we will build up this really sort of sanctimonious and awful, frankly, story about how saintly and angelic women are and how much we love children and how naturally great we are at taking care of children. And this, among other things, has made it really easy to blame teachers for absolutely every freaking thing that goes wrong, as you can see if you look at the op-ed pages of any major newspaper and even far too many supposedly progressive publications in the last few months. Um, so yeah, so what happens is once again, I mean, 76% of teachers in the US are still women, but that means that 24% of them are not. And those working conditions are, you know, spread across teaching. It's not like they are only held to the women teachers. Um, this is again, why you should care, even if you actually don't think that, you know, you think it's too woke or something to, uh, talk about women. (laughs) So, yeah. So what happens when, you know, in a place like Pittsburgh, um, to steal from my friend Gabe Winant's excellent new book, which everybody should also read. Well, we're going to have on the show. He said a book uh, a couple of weeks ago. Wonderful. Yeah. 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 So Gabe's book is great. So I'm going to like set him up right here and you can just (laughs) hand it off. Um, in Pittsburgh, when the steel mills close and the factories close and the workers still have health insurance, the hospitals grow. And so now the biggest employer in Pittsburgh is the university hospital. And who works in the university hospital? Nurses, CNAs, right? Nursing assistants. And once again, I mean, 90% of registered nurses, I believe, are women in the US. But it's okay. That's still 10% who aren't. Um, And that, you know, that's work that is decently paid. I mean, teaching and nursing are not like poverty wage jobs, right? They're, they're pretty good, but 
the conditions are still such that, you know, we've seen a wave of nurses strikes during the pandemic because nurses are all being, um, you know, asked to go into work without proper protective equipment still a year in, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they're still being asked to take care of way too many patients in an emergency. Um, They're still being asked basically to make up for every single budget cut and to do that all while risking getting COVID and dying themselves. So it's not all that surprising to me that there are nurses on strike all over the place. Um, There's an indefinite nurses strike, which is a slightly more rare thing happening right now at um, St. Vincent's Hospital in Massachusetts. Um, There have been more sort of one or two day nurses strikes that then turn into lockouts. Um, They tend to not be indefinite strikes because the same reason that, you know, it's hard to go on strike in the first place when you're a nurse is you do care about your patients. But the fact that they've been pushed to this point that we've seen a bunch of them in the last several months um, is indicative of just how bad the working conditions have gotten. Yeah, I think this also dovetails well with um, a past episode that we did with Aaron Benana mm-hmm. about how the economy has transitioned from, you know, manufacturing, which was this uniquely profitable phase yeah. of capitalism um, to a service yeah. economy, including a whole bunch of care work, which is not as profitable right. And therefore, it is harder for workers to claw back a portion of the profits right. when there's less to go around. Right. I mean, that that his book is really great. Um, so the thing about care work, right, It in some cases, it's literally the only thing that's happening, right? When we're talking about like home care workers, you're literally just, you know, you're, you're doing the care and, and it's not a particularly high overhead um, thing with teaching, with nursing, there's a little bit more other costs to go around. But in any case, like the labor costs are the biggest part of this thing by far. And it's highly, highly, highly resistance, resistant to the increase of the productivity of that labor. Exactly. For very obvious reasons. There are some many parts of the, of the care industry that literally can't be done by anybody except people. And all of Mm -hmm. the algorithms and all the machines in the world aren't going to change that. Right. Exactly. And this is, you know, this is the the essential work discourse around COVID, right? That that um, when we're talking about, like, what is the essential work that still needs to be done? Um, these are the questions that we're faced with, right? Is like, you, you probably can't ever automate a lot of this stuff. Because, I mean, A, because like, when you're sick, you want a human, not a robot to like, tell you it's going to be okay. Right. You actually want like human interaction. Um, it requires human judgment. It requires all of these things that like, I don't know. I mean, I'm all for fully automated luxury communism if we can get there, but I honestly like can't imagine the robot that could do some of these things, right? Like teaching, you can't sort of make teaching more productive year after year, although they've tried to do this by like jacking up class sizes, you know. When I Um, worked for the uh, the State University of New York, uh, mm -hmm. Cuomo uh, came in and I was just teaching apprentices. I was teaching them history and Cuomo and his people came in with like these quantitative data sheets that we were mm-hmm. supposed to fill out after every semester, like showing the gross amount of like test taking and then like comparing those scores across time yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And yeah. it's such a bizarre and perverted uh, distortion yeah. of what teaching actually is, which is a exactly. very human and qualitative enterprise. Right. Right. Exactly. And and also we mentioned Cuomo. So I feel like yeah, we should please. just pause and talk about like speaking of the world's worst boss yeah. um, oh, and geez. bad working conditions. And right. uh, yeah, generally um, awful things that happen in gendered labor. You have a boss like Andrew Cuomo who oh, God. 
sexually harasses the crap out of you. Um, yeah. So the, right, this drive to try to, you know, make, like I, I was talking to years ago during, um, right after Hurricane Sandy, I was talking to Judy, Judy Sheridan Gonzalez, who's the president of the New York State Nurses Association. Um, and they had been doing a whole bunch of volunteer work after the storm in places where people were, you know, completely cut off. They were going like door to door in high rise buildings, all of this stuff. And we were talking about that and we were talking about the hospital and she was saying that, you know, she's like in the hospital, they don't like to pay you for what they call non-productive time. And it was just like, what the hell is productive in the hospital? Right. <laughs> and like, so this whole thing of like lean healthcare, which is modeled on lean manufacturing in the automobile industry. Right. But like it's healthcare. Like what we learned during COVID once again, is that like having extra beds in the hospital that aren't being used is so that when you have a major global health crisis, you can take care of people and you don't have to set up tents and put corpses in freezer trucks. A hundred percent. You know? We saw that very, very vividly. I mean, God forbid another sort of natural disaster, right? Right, exactly. Like, yeah, what would have happened if we had Hurricane Sandy on top of COVID? Right. You know, like this idea that we, and I mean, we are going to have things like that because like climate change. So we're going to have both more pandemics, more superstorms, more crises. And the fact that we've like made a healthcare, I mean, we don't even have a healthcare system in this country. We have like a weird patchwork of, you know, healthcare institutions that sometimes sort of work. And even Andrew Cuomo during, you know, not to say anything good about Andrew Cuomo's management of this, you know, freaking crisis because it's been terrible from the beginning, no matter what anybody thinks about his press conferences. But even Cuomo sort of took control of all the hospitals in the state and basically was like, y'all have to work as a system now because this only works if we work as a system. And it's the same reason that like vaccination, which we started off by joking about, look at me, I can bring this in. Um, (laughs) Vaccination is like actually sort of going okay in America in a way that I had not thought possible largely because we've just accepted that you have to do this as a public service. And it turns out that like you can do that. It's just that it's mostly being done by the army. Hmm. <sighs> you know? Yeah. When, when Joe Biden is invoking the defense production act, you know that they've run out of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Alex Perrine had a good piece about this at the new Republic, right. About how like the vaccine sites at like the Javits center and whatnot are being run by the military, because like the only thing America has anymore as like a public sector is the military and the cops. And we certainly don't want cops vaccinating people. So if it's cops versus soldiers, I guess I'd rather have the National Guard. <laughs> or the Air Force in some cases. I know exactly. people the Air Force uh, yeah. vax them. And I was joking about how like funny it would be if like there were enough insurrections that they ran out of like National Guard and Army and Marines. And they started throwing like pilots in to try to like shut down the protests. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pirates, on, pirates, I almost said. Pirates. pirates on foot. <laughs> pirates would be cooler. Pirate, but anyway. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's uh, let's move on <laughs> to the part now called "Enjoy What You Do." That was a horrible trick. <laughs> um, we got we got some stuff that I want to get through. Yes. So here here it is. Um, there is another section of this book called "Enjoy What You Do," which is all about jobs that are just so cool and creatively fulfilling that people are supposed to be willing to do them basically for free often even taking jobs in the service sector just to support their writing habit or whatever, assuming they don't have rich parents, which many of them do. Um, 
what's harmful about this model? <laughs> and do you see it creeping into other sectors of the economy beyond what we would traditionally consider uh, pursuits of passion? Yeah, I mean, what's harmful about this model? Kind of everything, right? Um, so like journalism is a great example of this, right? Like journalism is a public service. It's supposed to be done so that like people can be informed of what's going on in the world and be like informed citizens of a democracy, right? Theoretically anyway. In practice, what's happened is that like for-profit journalism is dying because its model was already broken before the internet and the internet just broke it further. Um, ad revenue is... And um, journalism is, yeah, so journalism is screwed. Local newspapers are dying. Local TV news is a joke. Um, and instead, what we've got is a luxury industry that's mostly based in New York, where you have mostly kids who went to Ivy League schools who work at publications like The New Yorker, and they still don't make enough money, P.S. And <laughs> The New Yorker union has been fighting for a fair contract for months now. And... Yeah. And so we've turned what should be a public service, which used to be like, a you know, it was a working class job. It was it required some education, but it was a working class job. Um, we've turned it into a luxury product for rich people who can afford it. And, you know, the move to Substack don't even get me started. So we in this process, what it takes now to get a journalism job is unpaid internship after unpaid internship, a fancy degree from a journalism school. Um, that will supposedly help you get in the door at certain places and a whole bunch of work for very little money. So like when, Don't yeah, when it. like Vice, you know, unionized, we found out that you literally had people trying to live in New York City on salaries under $30,000 a year, which is just like, what the hell, right? Um, you cannot get a one bedroom apartment in New York City for less than like $1,800. And that is far out in the middle of nowhere at this point, um, where it would take you an hour and a half to get to work. So um, that that has like enormous consequences, not just for, you know, young idealistic kids who might want to be a journalist, like your humble narrator, um, but also like for journalism as a service, like why did labor journalism die until a handful of weirdos like me tried to resurrect it? Well, because like there were no working class people doing journalism in so many places. And journalism is becoming, a, a, again, a luxury product that has to be geared towards rich people to sell advertisements in order to keep it going. So why would anybody care about what, you know, workers at McDonald's are doing? until those workers at McDonald's make enough screeching noise that suddenly people are like, oh, hey, Sarah, you you write about the workers, right? Can you write a thing for us about this? Um, which has been my life for the last eight years. So um, I, I've been joking a lot in the last year um, since the pandemic is like, everybody's a labor reporter now because suddenly it's like, oh, work. This thing that everybody does for 40, 50, 60 hours a week or more. Um we were totally ignoring that for so much of the last however long because we just, yeah, we just didn't think it mattered anymore because we had basically eliminated structurally all of the people who might care about it. Right. And it's also been invisibilized as well. You know, right. like you write a lot about neoliberalism in your book. And mm -hmm. part of that process was to naturalize a whole bunch of things, mm -hmm. including uh, wage labor, include, including hustle and grind, right. including um, hyper exploitation that had in previous epochs, as we talked about in terms of loving your job, had certain connotations to them now. But in, a, in an economy where mostly what we talk about is consumption, we talk right. about community and 
in a very bizarre alien way. Uh, it's it's been like you know talking about work, except in a very sort of um, uh, mechanistic or sort of like yeah. um, what should we call it? And I almost would say meritocratic way has okay. kind of, has disappeared up until probably the crisis, right, of two thousand eight. Yeah. yeah, and it's. Um, it's sort of endlessly fascinating to me, right? That like neoliberalism is like my friend Adam Kotzko, who's a political theorist, right? It's sort of a giant mechanism for generating blame. So if you are not making a lot of money, it must be your fault. So try harder, work harder, get another job, hustle. You know, I mean, Dolly Parton rewriting nine to five, like broke my heart a little bit. Um, And, but you know, but this is, this is the story. I mean, Dolly is just a symptom um, that, we've all sort of internalized at this point, right? That like, if we're not doing well, it's, it's on us. It's our fault. It's our choices. It's our failure to do whatever, love the job enough, um, get the successfully love the, you know, the sufficiently lovable job, all of that, um, gets pushed back on us and it results in, you know, what Mark Fisher called like a massive privatization of stress. Mm. So we're we're sort of told that all of this is like our personal problem to deal with and not the fact that like work just doesn't work anymore. Um, that, you know, you have millions of people. I, you know, I just in in watching, you know, Kirsten Cinema and the rest of those jerks vote down the $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, you know, you have 20 something million people in this country who would benefit from a rate that's 20 something working million working people. Um, That's not even talking about how many unemployed people we have who, yeah, would benefit from that because like something like a quarter to a third of the workforce makes less than $15 an hour. Um, That's, that's how many people Kirsten Sinema was voting thumbs down to because she's the worst. (laughs) She used to be an anarchist too, which like, I'm not going to use this as an opportunity shit on anarchists. And the green party. And she was in the Green Party? Sure. We could use this opportunity to shit on that maybe a little, but sorry. I mean, we just hate her. Like, can you imagine having been in the black block with fucking Kirsten Cinema? Oh, do you think she was that kind of anarchist? I don't know Uh, if I believe that. I feel like she was just like on Live Journal. Perhaps. Um, I'm not sure. I I think she was somewhat heavily involved though. She was like she's written things in defense of the black block. Like really? Yeah, her thesis like cited uh, a Gombin, like an Italian autonomist who we are familiar with on this Uh, podcast. Like, I just, I'm like, how, how the fuck? I well, this is, really, you've taught me things about Christian cinema. I did not know. I mean, um, this is, this is, um, all right. why if you don't have a solid critique of political economy, whether you're an anarchist <laughs> or a communist or anybody, it's so easy to just kind of drift yourself into very, very reactionary positions. If you're only talking about kind of abstract freedom and liberty, and that's a critique of some anarchists out there. Oh, yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's real. It's real. Um, it's. She infuriates me at so many levels, but right. But the, the, the fact that like, you know, the reality is that like work is fucked. Work doesn't work anymore for however many millions of people just in this country, billions of people worldwide where like, you know, d- d- there's just nothing. This is again, you talk to Aaron. So like he has better numbers on this than I do. Um, yeah. What we have is like a world of underemployed people hustling desperately to try to make ends meet. And that sort of being glossed over by telling us that a few of us can get lucky and get jobs that we love and then it will be cool. Mm 
And it's just like, yeah, yeah, that's just, that's just not going to solve the problem on like any possible level, including the fact that like, even if you get those cool jobs, they still suck. I I think there's, I think there's like a, a, an imminent way to understand this. And uh, I always go back to Harry Braverman when it comes Mm -hmm. to these sort of uh, dynamics of capitalist production. Um, You know, there was, what happened to blue collar workers through the 19th and through the course of the 20th century yeah. was capital finding these sort of skills, these craft autonomies that they had amongst themselves that they were able to use in order to leverage decent high wages, create sort of guild type unions of which I'm one, you know, I'm, I'm in one yeah. of those still to this day. Um, and so the unionization happens uh, amongst these people. But as you were talking about before with the NLRA, Tons and certainly with Taft Harley, tons of white collar mm-hmm. workers and service workers were excluded from that. I think now that um, these effects of capitalist production, this ability for capital to de-skill and to break mm-hmm. up worker workers, now that it's hitting uh, a, a subsection of uh, of the of, of like of American and advanced economy workers mm-hmm. who actually are listened to, who actually do have a voice, who are able to write, who have college degrees, now that it's hitting those people. Uh, I think it's just it, it's this has always existed to an extent now. Right. It's so pervasive now and hitting different parts of the class mm-hmm. structure that we're starting to hear about it, even though, of course, it existed, you know, 30, yeah. 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. And there's a really interesting point that um, somebody was making on Twitter the other day that I, I was really struck by because they were talking about and this was a somebody in the UK talking about the sort of destruction of academic labor at this point, which has, you know, been totally casualized. Like, I don't know the number offhand in the US. I mean, they eliminated tenure entirely in the UK. Margaret Thatcher did. But in the US, 74%, I think, of of college classes are now taught by adjuncts and grad students and otherwise contingent faculty, Mm. right? So, but this person was pointing out that this is actually similar to what happened with auto workers and miners and these other sort of advanced sections of the class in the 70s, because like Thatcher, for example, like very clearly understood that the miners not only were like, you know, a high wage industry at the time, but also they were like the bastion of militancy. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about it that way, right, that like these were workers who were not only sort of just like mechanically better, like this is the way we end up talking about these jobs a lot. We have to like bring back the mines because those are like better jobs. So, like these jobs sucked. What happened was that you had militant cultures of radical unionism in these places that were deliberately destroyed, not because any like Margaret Thatcher did not you know care about the environment. She didn't kill coal mines because she realized that coal was killing the planet. Oh, they were getting they two years right. later they found oil in the North Sea and right exactly out of it. exactly right. Margaret Thatcher killed the miners' unions because the miners had a radical union, right. and this is what they're doing now. That like the face of fighting neoliberalism is now in is the academy. And so I think it's important to like, think about that the way that like, you know, these workers were the intellectual forefront of fighting this thing. And that was one of the reasons that they had to decompose this part of the class and ship it off to wherever they could, whether that be, you know, again, the American South or Bangladesh, um, that, and that's what they're doing to academia. And so, you know, it's funny, I was interviewing, um, one of the Google union leaders earlier today, um, for a story that I'm working on. And we were talking about, you know, when the Google union announced itself, um, people were like, well, you're not coal miners. You don't need a union. And um, I mean, other than that, people also said that coal miners didn't need a union at the time. But 
the thing about it, right, is that like actually they they are going to do the exact same thing to, you know, software engineers as they did to miners, which is, you know, try to flood the industry with people who can code, right? This is what all those learn to code admonitions are actually for. It's not because they care about people. It's because they want to lower the price of coders. Mm-hmm. And then they will destroy it and decompose it. And they are already doing this. I mean, this is why Mark Zuckerberg puts money into, you know, forward.us. It's not because he's a nice person who cares about immigrants. It's because he wants to bring in low-wage guest workers. Deadass. Um, I keep saying that word. I guess it's our, it's, I guess it's our catchphrase now. <laughs> it's been for a while, to be honest. Deadass has, has been part of our culture for some, I mean, some time speaking of unions all right uh we talk a lot about unions in reference to these issues as we should and i'm sure sean has opinions to add on what purpose unions Ooh, might me? serve in the anti-capitalist movement sure. as a yes. worker uh <laughs> but we gotta remember our goal is ultimately to abolish any kind of compulsory labor yes. and that many of the most oppressed segments of the proletariat uh, are not currently participating in the formal labor market, either because of disability or because they're in prison, although a lot of people in prison are made to do slave labor, um, or because people are unemployed yeah. and can't find jobs. So how do we make sure to bring these people into this wider anti-capitalist yeah. movement and a- avoid a kind of vulgar workerism mm. where where people's entitlement to lead good lives that they are in control of is contingent on their status as workers who are doing productive labor. Thank you for this question. Or if this you're, is very important. Or if you're good at uh, Marxist phraseology, not even that, but uh, their relation, whether they produce value or not, then becomes a mm, part of a yeah. judgment call on whether they deserve it. I had a really annoying argument with a guy at a party once who wanted to tell me that it was very important when organizing domestic workers to know whether they worked for an agency and therefore were producing value for capital or whether they were just privately hired and therefore not technically producing value for capital. And I stared at him and started laughing because it was the dumbest argument I'd ever friggin had. And I've had a lot of dumb arguments in my 40 years of life. Yeah, and every Uber driver is a small business. Yeah, no, it's just like you're... Anyway, um, yeah, if you actually think that this is how we should understand the world, I, I just think you're wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, part of the, the reason that I wrote this book was just to kind of be like, we need to let go of valorizing work as the thing that like makes one valid because like, I mean, look where that got us. It got us freaking Trumpism, right? It, it gets us Josh Hawley telling us he's going to be the leader of the working class, which is just freaking hilarious. Um, but it also gets us like the Lieutenant governor of Texas saying that grandma and grandpa would be happy to die so we can get the economy going again. It gets us not vaccinating a single person in prison, even though we vaccinate the prison guards. It gets us, you know, arguments about whether people died with COVID or of COVID because they had pre existing conditions. And so therefore, it's fine if they die. Um, right? It gets us all of these just like horrifying arguments about how like some people can die because they're not actually producing value for capital at this moment in time, mm-hmm. which is insane. And it's horrifying. And it is capitalism. And that's what it's all about. Um, so a very good friend of mine, Julian Saravo, who um, works with the think tank Autonomy in the UK, um, he is an architect, actually. But um, one of his big research interests is elderly care and living and what kind of structures we could build for people who are no longer in the workforce to live in. Um, all of these things. And I... Um, 
remember this article that he had written for this conference that went on like two years ago, which feels like a lifetime ago now, um, where he talked about the revolutionary subject is actually your grandma. Because grandmothers are presumably, I mean, not all of them, some grandmas are still working. But, you know, if you're retired, you're out of the labor force, your labor was never probably valued all that much because, you know, grandmas are were around for the last however long of, you know, devaluing of domestic labor, women's labor, caring labor. And now they're not producing value for capital at all. So grandma is actually the real radical subject that we need to consider. Um, so I think that's great. And I think we need to um, run everything around grandmas. <laughs> but like the, the, the point of sort of criticizing like producerism as a way of thinking, right, which is at the root of a lot of populism and which. Right. And left populism. Good. Right. Exactly. And it's one of the problems with left populism that doesn't actually right that doesn't grapple with this fact that like, OK, um, it's very easy to designate all sorts of people as parasites who aren't just the bosses. It's very easy to say that, you know, welfare mothers were parasites, for example, and that got us absolutely nowhere good. Um, everybody in politics owes the welfare rights movement an apology and reparations. Well, yeah, and we many have other things. done at least one episode on the welfare rights yeah. movement. And I feel like because it pops up a lot the best. because we love we Because love they were and... the best. Because they were out to destroy wage labor, the family, the state, racism, heterosexism, all of it. It was great. They were going to yeah. wreck all of it. And um, they almost succeeded. Anyway. We... Yeah, and they weren't just like academics talking about the shit in cafes either. They were like working class people. They were they were they were the real. Yeah. Heads, you know? They were the best. Imagine <laughs> nothing, nothing against yeah. academics. No, but I mean, imagine a world where instead of obsessing over, like, no offense to my, you know, white dudes who work in factories or construction, oh. but like, what if we thought about grandmas? What if we thought about moms? What if we thought about right? Black women, and this is the Combahee River Collective's argument, right? Like, if we centered the needs of these women, everybody else would be free because they would actually like set free all of this. It was not just like a you know pie in the sky, whatever. It was actually understanding that like the nexus of bullshit that these women faced was actually everything we want to dismantle. And so if we actually like said like, okay, what did they need? They needed places to live. They needed somebody to stop rifling through their underwear drawer to see if they were having sex with men because that you couldn't have. Um, so, you know, they needed money. They needed to stop being discriminated against for housing, shopping, any of those things. Um, they needed to not be treated like they were worthless by caseworkers. Um, and they fought for a guaranteed income for everyone. Not just for themselves, once again. So, yeah, we basically should always just listen to the welfare rights movement. They knew everything. Jamie's uh, asking me in chat, what's up with that sound in the background? And that's actually the uh, musician next door practicing his drums. What an auspicious time for him to begin his practicing. Listen, I got a labor of love. His labor of love. Uh, he does it for free. I uh, I got to jump, but this is a, this conversation is well within your hands. You guys are having having a great conversation now and i trust you to oh God, continue you. with it go forth enjoy whatever it is that you're off to next thanks i'm going to the park <laughs> yeah, enjoy the park i will do Sounds all right lovely. where am i okay yeah so we've seen a lot of discourse around the so-called 
professional managerial class, which really seemed to balloon in part as a response to Elizabeth Warren and the constituency that seemed to be supporting her and other left liberals and let's just say people of snakiness. That's the politically correct way to refer to them, um, which I understand. Like they are infuriating. But do you find anything useful about this discourse or does it really just serve to mystify what class actually is. Yeah, I pretty much think it's useless at this point. I'm also joined in this opinion by Barbara Ehrenreich herself, who coined the term. So I feel justified in saying I think it's gone. No, it's kind of like privilege, which like started off as a useful term, but has now just turned into like every time somebody is using it, it's just the like Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man gif. And this is all I think of when people say PMC too. It's like almost entirely like somebody pointing to somebody else and being like, you're a college educated person. Well, so are you. Ah! And like, okay, that has gotten us nowhere. So the the argument, and it was one of those things that once again, sort of like the Combahee River Collective's theorizing on this subject, they were like trying to think through how we organize. So like Barbara and John Ehrenreich um, were trying to think about like, what is the role of the middle class in socialist organizing, right? And that was a real question. And so, you know, they they think about this. Um, essentially, it is just the middle class, right? It's people whose job is to manage, train, educate, um, serve in various ways other workers, right? So, yeah, or um, like to mediate the relationship between labor and capital. Yeah, but the way that that's and, like, done, the contradictions. Yeah, and the thing that that um, I think Aaron Badanov also points this out in in his book that like what's really happened is actually like the professional part of the PMC, if it was ever a coherent thing, which I would argue kind of not. Um, the professional part has been mostly decomposed. So everybody from teachers who you know everybody talks about teachers as the quintessential working class occupation these days because teachers are really militant, but teachers were actually the quintessential PMC occupation. Um, and, but like, you know, we were just talking about the decomposition of academia as, you know, organized both in the workplace and as organized in, you know, itself and, um, doctors and, you know, so many more doctors now are working for a hospital or working for, um, some sort of corporate, whatever, or have to go into private practice and like very specific things, which is why we have a primary care doctor shortage, um, any number of other things. And meanwhile, managers are doing great. And especially upper managers who get paid in stock options. We're talking about executives, right? Um, so sort of management and finance are actually like this part that's actually split off over here. And professionals in a lot of cases are actually sort of being, I was talking about journalism, sort of the same thing, right? That these parts of what we might have called the PMC are now um, in much worse conditions than they were when the Ehrenreichs were writing this. So, you know, it's a lesson in sort of the pitfalls of trying to describe something as a class when maybe it isn't. Um, because maybe the interests of the type of mediating between capital and labor that a doctor does is different than the type of mediating between capital and labor that an executive does, or even that a foreman does, right? Um, yes, capital needs workers to get health. Well, they need them to have some sort of health care. I mean, we've seen in this country just exactly how little health care we think workers can get by with. 
But they need workers to be sort of functional, which is why social reproduction is important under capitalism. But they don't really care. And also, like, humans need doctors because we're humans, not just because we are automatons who are labor power for capital. So that's that's functionally different than being a manager whose job is literally to control the workers so that they make the most money possible. So... Yeah, this was always sort of a problematic designation, and the way it's used on the internet is almost entirely bloody useless. Because, like, it doesn't actually tell you anything useful about why some people supported Elizabeth Warren to say that they are PMC. It tells yeah. you basically nothing. Um, well, they, they did it because they're, like, woke and they're bougie, right? Like, it, it feels like people are substituting... Uh, identity for class a little bit yeah and like it's, they're doing class as an identity rather mm -hmm. than a social relation which uh -huh. if they read their marks they would know <laughs> is actually what's going on yeah and so you know to understand that like in many cases right like again i was talking to um the one of the leaders of the google union and they're organizing their union very specifically sort of up and down the workforce so they have you know software engineers and ethical ai researchers and cleaning workers and data center workers all in the union. And the point of that is that they are all in relation to Google. They're all workers. They also have like complicated relationships to manage within that union within like, there are some workers who have a lot more power than others. But if they do that right, they can actually leverage the power of the more powerful workers at Google, right? Who are the software engineers, um, the ethical AI researchers, although they keep getting fired, so maybe they're not as powerful as we thought. Um, they can actually leverage their power on behalf of the data center worker. So she was telling me a story about somebody who worked in a data center in South Carolina and these are, you know, just like big old warehouses, essentially, where there are servers, right? That's that's what we're talking about. Um, and this woman had gotten fired for some stupid reason. And the union filed an unfair labor practice charge, which like goes in front of the board. And maybe, you know, in five years, they do something about it. Or the union makes a big stink out of it. And because they had coders and other, again, sort of, you know, highly, um, I don't want to use the term aristocracy of labor, because it's but um, more valued workers, we'll say, involved, that was helpful to get this other woman her job back. So to understand, like, again, like, as you said, like the social relation, like there are complicated social relationships going on within that union. This is true in most workplaces. That's just true because like humans are messy and complicated. But in relationship to Google, they're all workers, even if some of them are paid more than others. Um, and that's the challenge of sort of thinking about how to organize this way. And this is the challenge of sort of understanding what class is, because it's messy and it's not easy. And it's not something you can figure out just by looking at someone like everybody tried to do, you know, when all those douchebags stormed the Capitol. Everybody's like, they're working class because they're like white guys wearing camo. And I was like, that's not how class works. That's right. Uh, yeah, that I we we have done entire episodes about that because I think it's very interesting. But um, yeah, like I've seen this play out a lot in my own life from when, you know, when I had my first full time job and I just fucking hated it. But I was like, well, you know, I'm fortunate to have a job as a staff writer and not have to do hard manual labor, which is a thing, you know, you're taught 
growing up PFC that you got it real good. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what's what's wrong with me? I really should just like, you know, suck it up and feel happy. That and love your job more, right? Yeah, suck it up, feel happy that I have this job. And like, I really beat myself up for hating it so much because I'm like, well, I like writing. I just hate uh working, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Having be... a boss, that shit sucks. Yeah, I, I, I must be just like, you know, a PFC piece of shit. And then like, Later on, when I was a little more uh, conscious of myself as a worker, uh, when I was trying unsuccessfully to unionize the media company that I worked at, uh, a lot of people were really not convinced that white collar workers like themselves needed unions right. because they thought, oh, unions are for people doing these physically dangerous unions jobs. Unions are for coal miners, right? Yeah, like we have it really good. We don't want to rock the boat. I mean, some of them were afraid of getting fired. Some of them were just like, seems like too much work for, I don't know what I'm going to get out of this. Like, how do, how do we change these kinds of attitudes? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing, the number one thing is just like seeing other people unionize, right? Seeing other people um, succeed. So like the Gawker union was like really important for so many other people because they saw this thing happen and it sort of happened like messily and in public, right? Like, because it happened on the internet, like everything happens on the internet. Um, and that was really sort of pivotal for um people realizing that like, this is a thing that can also help you. And, you know, we, we sort of, this is like actually to bring back in like the concept of privilege and how it can get really useless. Um, people will say like, Oh, but aren't we privileged? And like the epitome of this, right. Was remember right after Trump was elected and some people were like, we should have a general strike. Everybody who can take a day off work should take a day off work. And like, that's not what a strike is. Um, And then people started talking about when like the women's strike was actually organized and people were talking about like, actually we're going to have a strike on this day. And then people were like, Oh, but, but only privileged people can go on strike. And it was like, actually um, the labor movement has been built by people who aren't privileged going on strike. That's actually how we got unions. So, you know, this, this way that we think that like, we're talking about our privilege is somehow like helpful to other people, but actually like that's the opposite of solidarity. That's like deliberately sort of taking ourselves out of that relationship and saying we are not workers like your workers. You're like a different kind of worker that we have to feel bad for. And I mean, this was also sort of happening in this, this annoying sort of conversation around um, boycotting Amazon supposedly in solidarity with the workers at Bessemer who hadn't called for a boycott. So, you know, I mean, nobody is required to shop at Amazon. I do my best to never shop at Amazon, but you know, it's, it's a thing. But when, you know, the workers had not called for one and were saying we didn't call for one and people were sort of insisting, well, like the unions lie all the time. And it's like, do you do, you do know that you're doing the boss's work for them by saying that the union lies, right? Right. Like you're aware that that's, that's a thing. Right. And you know, so we end up even people on the supposed left who wanted to, you know, or who are using these terms of wanting to be in solidarity with these workers who are organizing a union, they still end up with this sort of like charitable mindset of like, we have to, you know, do this thing in solidarity with the workers who haven't asked for it. Because we know better than they do what the union really means when it says we didn't call for a boycott. They said we didn't call for a boycott. That's what they meant. Um, they're not, there's not like a big Catherine Hahn meme wink going on there. Right. But like, if we think of ourselves as having a similar relationship to our boss and to power as these workers, 
then we can also think of ourselves as being more like them and not them being like the sad, sad people down there in Alabama that we have to feel bad for. But actually these fucking badasses who are taking on Jeff Bezos and might beat him in a way that pretty much no one else has. Um, and that that's not like a thing we have to like feel, you know, put aside our privilege and like, you know, oh, yes, we appreciate you. No, they're fucking doing great. <laughs> and like a lot of people in white collar work could learn a lot by actually understanding that like our conditions are not as different as we think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it. I feel like we get hit with this discourse sometimes as a podcast because like, you know, Sean is a blue collar worker and I'm a media professional and you're in the PMC, Jamie. I'm it's a, terrible. I'm a PMC. <laughs> and yet he makes way more money than me. And he has a thing called a pension. It's like, I didn't even know what a defined benefit pension was like, oh, yeah. to fucking yeah. explain it to me. Mm -hmm. So like, maybe oh my God. these um, categories are not as explanatory as people think they are the other day my friend um pointed me to building trades tiktok and oh, then specifically gosh. to hashtag women in the trades tiktok which rules and the best thing about it is it's all of these like amazing women going like why would anybody want to like this one woman is like People are all like, why do you want to do a man's job? And she's like, oh, I'm like really passionate about paying the bills. <laughs> and this other woman is like, you know, somebody was like, why would you want to be an iron worker? And she's like, because apprentice rate is $23 an hour because journeyman rate is like 30 whatever dollars an hour. And it's just like, right. Yeah. We think of these things as like so different, but actually... Yeah, in so many of these cases, like, yeah, going into the building trades would be like way better for me than being a journalist. I would have a much more secure lifestyle. Shit, maybe I should. You know, it's I kind of like doing work with my hands. Maybe I should go into maybe I should go like be a plumber. Fuck uh, journalism anyway. Talk to Sean. Like, maybe not a plumber. I don't know. I feel like there are some things though. Maybe an electrician. I think yeah. That would be my thing. I installed I was... a light fixture in my house once. I was really pleased with myself. Um, I, I'm I could impressed. totally be an electrician. I'm impressed with that. You, know, you had to like... get like one of those things to test the thing to make sure you don't electrocute yourself before you touch it. Yeah. I read some things on the internet. No, it sounds <laughs> like it would be neat. And yeah. like I would feel very useful if I did that. But, right. You know, but yeah, like... and this is, this is another thing that the labor of love discourse does for us, right? Is like this idea that like, oh, poor blue collar worker. It's like, dude, <laughs> he's doing fine. Yeah, no, Sean knows guys from the job that have like boats and stuff. And I'm yeah. like, must, must be nice. Like, good for you, man. You seem like you're enjoying your life, um, which is yeah. a thing that we all should be doing and that we all deserve. Yeah. No, I mean, I went to Indiana to, to cover the carrier plant story, which, you know, of course, Trump was like, oh, we're going to save the carrier plant. Um, and I'm talking to the guys from the carrier plant and the Rexnord plant around the corner that Trump definitely didn't save and was asking people, you know, what are you going to miss when the job goes away? Right. Cause they're protesting, trying to save their jobs. And like, you know, people would look at me like I had three heads and they're like the paycheck, $26 an hour. And then overtime, um, you know, the health insurance, like maybe they would be like, yeah, I miss the other guys, you know, going for a beer across the street. Like nobody said I missed standing at the machine all day because that shit sucks. Mm -hmm. um, but it was like, yeah, I own a house. 
I can't do that if I have to go work at the Amazon warehouse down the street because they won't pay me $26 an hour plus overtime. Yeah, man, that shit is so important. It's not like people miss like the coal miner way of life. You know, they miss, they don't miss getting the black lung disease. They you know, the money <laughs> and the benefits and the being able to provide for themselves and their families. So turns out black lung sucked, man. Still yeah. does suck because a lot of people still have it. Yeah, it's fucking horrible. So speaking of romanticizing the past. Uh, <laughs> nailed it. Uh, when, when talking about the kinds of reforms that we want to see in the world, uh, things that left wing populists are talking about, like like Bernie Sanders and his followers, uh, self-described democratic socialists. Uh, people often tend to romanticize the Fordist era or mm -hmm. the post-war compromise, right? Yeah. Like if we can just bring back good union jobs and, you know, do the New Deal minus the racism and sexism, we would have an economy that works for everybody. Uh, why is this not a good enough horizon to be shooting for? What? You want me to talk about how social democracy is inherently unstable? I mean, sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right, is that like this compromise, this sort of detente is, is the term I like to use for it, right, was a very particular, very short period of time when certain people, and again, not everybody, because it was very much contingent on not everybody, um, had decent working conditions, a union, a uh, house, maybe a boat, um, maybe a paid vacation or two. That was contingent, A, on everybody else who was doing work that wasn't in those positions. You can't actually, like, broadly spread this to everyone in the same way. It, it literally doesn't work that way. Um, and B, like, capital never stopped trying to smash it. And, you know, the the thing about, like, right now is, is when we look at the strike frequency and things, and we were depressingly talking about, you know, the way that it had gone down last year, although some of that is that the way we calculate strike statistics doesn't work anymore because there are fewer workplaces that have over a thousand people and the BLS only calculates strikes over a thousand people. Anyway, I digress. Um, we have a, you know, absolutely just atrophied strike muscle in this country compared to what it used to be, even during this point of supposed labor peace, people were going on strike all the friggin' time. There were constant, constant battles on the shop floor. And in, in like, in some cases, and I don't want to sort of overly romanticize the wildcat strike, because I think this is also a problem the left has these days. But, you know, you had workers who were challenging the leadership of the union in various ways. And this was, you know, true in Detroit, in Floridstown, and in, in all sorts of places where, you know, people had sort of gotten all of the benefits of the Fordist era, right? They had good jobs in the factory. They had pensions. They had a house. They had a boat. They had a 40-hour work week. Turns out it still sucked. Because working in a factory for 40 hours a friggin' week still sucks. And so this was what happened in places like Lordstown, um, in like the Fiat factories in Italy in the 70s, was workers going like, yeah, right, we got all this, it still sucks. I still don't want to spend my life in a factory, actually. And that, 
you know, that was this like brief, very exciting period of, of, you know, ferment that then gets squashed by neoliberalism by literally decomposing the working class, packing up all the factories, moving them around, automating things. And now we've got the service industry, which as you were talking about, Aaron Bananov earlier, making the point that like, you can't squeeze that in the same way that you could squeeze manufacturing. Um, and this is a challenge for, you know, even those of us who might like to see fully automated luxury communism once again. So we actually have to like radically rethink the relationship of production in order to actually like get anywhere that could actually work for most people. Because otherwise, like what you're doing is still sort of just redistributing some of the spoils of capital accumulation to some of the workers. And to actually, like, make it work for everybody, that means, like, Jeff Bezos can't just give up a little around the edges. Jeff Bezos is going to have to give up the whole thing. I'm sorry. Um, And all of the rest of them. Elon Musk and his fake wealth and that dude and his NFT wealth. Like, sorry, we're coming for all of it. Because you can't actually solve the problem for everybody and still maintain, like, capitalism. Still maintain, like capital accumulation like literally that is the problem um and yeah like you you just like it doesn't work that way you can't have unequal wealth accumulation and also an economy that works for everyone and you know a planet that we can inhabit and most especially a planet that we can inhabit right yeah like i'm i'm my friend's place that i'm staying at for the last few months has this giant map of the world on the wall right here and i am on where it cuts off is in the you know pacific ocean on this side of uh, Australia and New Zealand. And so I'm like literally looking every day at all of these little island nations that will be underwater in 20 years if we don't do something. So I think about this a lot. I'm just yeah. like, yeah, Nauru. I, I'm pretty sure that that's not going to exist soon. Yeah, probably not going to make it to there before it. Yeah, yeah. So like, right. Like, it's just like this This map here is like very useful for me in, in just thinking about like, yeah. So that's a thing we need to think about. Um, not just like whether like, oh, we can like distribute around the edges a little bit of the spoils. No, man, like I want these countries to still exist. Yeah. I want the people to live there to still be able to live. Like, that's, that's a thing. A very, that's a very reasonable position. <laughs> um, I think so. I think so. But I, I think even if it were possible to solve all of these crises, right? Like maybe Elon Musk invents some magical carbon scrubbing technology tomorrow. <laughs> Elon uh, Musk has never invented anything in his life. Well, stay, stay with me. Let's suspend our disbelief for a minute. Yeah. Perhaps I should have used a more realistic example, but like... Uh, even I got nothing. If, even if it were possible to right. solve the climate crisis and the crisis of profitability that we have been spiraling into since the 1970s right. and bring back this golden age of capitalism, that's not good enough. Like, yeah. it still sucks to have no control over your life. And I think yeah. the difference between leftists and liberals, uh, one of the main differences is, yeah. you know, liberals just want to reduce poverty whereas leftists want people to have control over their lives and over their time and over their creative powers and over the things that we're making yeah and right and my my sort of point with writing this book was just like right like we no matter how much you love your job it is still alienated labor right? My book is still alienated labor. I don't control how many copies of that get printed and where it gets sold and how it gets distributed. 
I don't. That's mm-hmm. just, you know, somebody else does that. They gave me some money and in, in return, they get to do basically what they want with my book. And uh, yeah, and that's, and again, like I have it fairly good, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a pension, yeah. but you know, <laughs> I don't have good health insurance, but whatever. Um, right. And and so, yeah, like the the idea, which I think is at the heart of this drive towards a labor of love as I gesture with my little wombat here, um, is the desire for unalienated labor, except we can't have unalienated labor under capitalism. That's right. Yeah. Thinking about love, whether it's love of what we do, like I like what I do too. And it sucks that I'm doing it uh, within a capitalist framework Uh, or, or talking about social reproduction, like, I think about this all the time as someone who's thinking about having kids. Like, yeah. I don't even have them yet, but I'm already so mad that they're going to be caught up in this fucking rat race. And that by bringing a precious, cherubic life into the world, I will be necessarily producing a commodity called human labor power. Like, that yeah. sucks. When my kids grow up, they might have to move away because they're chasing after jobs. Like, is there any way that we can disaggregate these things from one another and and build a realm of real love and community uh, beyond or against the market? Or is that something that can really only happen after we uh, after we get rid of capitalism and, you know, labor becomes life's prime want, as Mark said, which is like, we could do a whole other podcast yeah. discussing I don't know if that. I agree with him on that one, but anyway. Probably. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that capitalism has gotten real, real good at sort of, you know, invading every part of our lives and trying to wring a profit out of every little bit of it, right? But that said, like, yeah, I think there are all sorts of things that we still, you know, I don't think it's false consciousness to be like, I really miss my friends right now. I don't think that that is... is um, wrong or something that like I can only appreciate after the fall of the capitalist mode of production. Like I actually think that, you know, we have gotten to the point of wanting to destroy this awful way that we live because we do see the things that could be around the outside. Right. We do understand that like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no outside to capitalism, but also like we can imagine better. And we know what it is like to be in solidarity, right? We know what it means. Like I I sort of at the conclusion of the book um, spend a lot of time just sort of dwelling in like, why is it that so many of the protests over the last 10 years, um, 10, 11, 12 years now since, you know, 2008, 2009, um, have focused on sort of reclaiming space away from work, away from what we might have to do and being with other people in sort of public spaces on picket lines. Um, you know, last summer when the, you know, the next round of black lives matter protests came out and, you know, I remember being in the streets in Philadelphia and just sort of being like, Oh my God, I'm around people again. This is so cool because we've just been locked up in the house for three months. 
And people were, you know, pulling little red wagons with bottles of water and hand sanitizer and snack bars. And like this one time there was literally like people set up with like chafing dishes of like hot food down in, you know, right by City Hall in Philly. And I have this picture of like, you know, on the ground level, there were people standing behind the chafing dishes, handing out hot meals. And then above them on the the second tier of this building, the National Guard is there with all of their, you know, rifles and weapons. And I'm like, so yeah, so like this, this is, is the problem with everything is that like what the government is doing is aiming guns at people who are here protesting, saying, let us live and the people who are giving them food. And, you know, so we do imagine spaces that are, you know, necessarily limited and don't really take us outside, but help us at least imagine what outside might look like. And I think that that's um, what keeps me going when I contemplate packing in the towel and trying to raise sheep or something. Yeah, totally. Like, I really like uh, the Sylvia Federici quote that you put uh, at the beginning of your last chapter, where she says, we want to call work what is work, so that eventually we might rediscover what is love. And I think about that a lot, in reference to my own life and my own work. And like, you know, the I guess the connective tissue from being having been like a music and culture writer, and I often would write about like partying with my friends to, to what I do now is like, yeah. yeah, I want everyone to be able to party with their friends. Mm-hmm. And I want to extend the love I have for my friends to everyone in the world because it's not yeah. just us that matters. And that yeah. might sound kind of cringe, but no. we are, mean... we're, we're, we're in, we like to say corny communism here at the Antifada, and that's like kind of my vibe for 2021. I'm down. Um, I think all communists are secretly romantics, and or not so secretly. Um, I'm a total sap, and I'm here for it. And I, you know, wrote the last chapter of my book just kind of like sobbing Aww. a lot. It was just like, <laughs> um, and then sent it to two of my friends when I finished it. I was like, I need you to read this right now. <laughs> So, you know, yeah, I think I think the reason we do this is because we know that this sucks and we know it can be better and we know it should be better because like it's ridiculous that it that life sucks this badly so that Jeff Bezos can accumulate however many billion dollars it is this week. Yeah, no, fuck that. So, um, all right. We like to end on a call to action. So let's say everyone's consciousness is raised. All right. You've written a very good self-help book i hope it makes it into the self-help sections because those are the people who really need to read it right and everyone's like "Mm, you know what actually fuck this job graphic design is not my passion i want to unite with the workers of the world and take back what is ours so what are some like you know self-helpy tips and tricks for people to get involved in solving this very intimidating and enormous problem that we have. Yeah, it's intense, huh? Um, Organize your workplace. If you do not have a workplace, organize something. Um, There are so many millions of things going on right now that it's like really hard actually to be like, huh, what's a list of things people can do? Um, You know, I've been following the latest round of of anti-policing organizing in the UK because I've got a lot of friends and comrades there that are trying to stop this horrifying um, police crackdown bill. Um, We are 
still have to fight for the $15 an hour minimum wage, um, trying to impeach Andrew Cuomo here in New York. Um, You know, there are mutual aid networks in your neighborhood that almost certainly need doing. And yeah, you probably do wage labor of some sort. If you are listening to the show, I imagine you are not like the idle rich. And although I hope we have some grandmas because I am here for the grandmas. Um, And yeah, organize somehow at your workplace, talk to your coworkers, um, find out what they hate about your boss. Cause it's probably the same thing you hate about your boss and figure out how you can do that. Um, there are, we, we've name dropped a bunch of different campaigns on this show, right? I've talked about the, uh, Google union. We've talked about the Amazon workers and Bessemer. We've talked about teachers unions. We've talked about nurses. Um, there's nurses strike in Massachusetts. You can support right now. Um, there's probably about 12 others that are about to pop off. Um, teachers in your community are almost certainly either back in the workplace without proper precautions or are trying or are fighting being forced back into the workplace without proper precautions. So, um, figure out how you can show up for them. Um, I don't know. That's like 20 things. (laughs) There are many, many, many things that need to be done. 